Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. As the U.S. engages in yet another military campaign, unleashing its arsenal on targets in Iraq and Syria to reduce the so-called Islamic State, professions of American innocence once again abound. Politicians, pundits, and generals plead their case as reluctant warriors, burdened with the heroic responsibility of turning back an existential threat that appeared, apparently, out of nowhere. Mentions of the near-decade-long U.S. occupation and its attendant devastation, if acknowledged at all, are fleetingly packaged as yet another tragic example of the American moral burden. This insistence on innocence, profuse as it's been over the 13 years of the so-called War on Terror, has a deep history, my guest today argues. Boyd Cuthren is Assistant Professor of History at York University in Toronto, where he focuses on U.S. Indigenous and cultural history. His new book, Remembering the Modoc War, Redemptive Violence and the Making of American Innocence is just out from the University of North Carolina Press. Focusing on the historiography, as opposed to simply the history of the Modoc War, Catherine argues that settlers, journalists, capitalists, and eventually historians have worked to remember the episode not as a violent process of ethnic cleansing, but a redemptive narrative of American innocence. From the advent of the war in 1872 to the monuments and memorializations through the 20th century and indeed till today, these narratives have circulated in what Cawthron calls a marketplace of remembering. Systems, institutions, procedures, social relations, arenas of trade where men and women, settler and indigenous, recite, manipulate, and even monetize the past and the currencies of the present. At its time, and in the decades that followed, the Modoc War was one of the most iconic, most covered eruptions of settler-native violence in all of the so-called Indian Wars. Yet it's been largely overshadowed in contemporary historical memory. I began by asking Cawthron to lay out the basic story. So the Modoc War is this um, little remembered but very significant event that takes place, uh, that begins in the, in the winter of, of 1872. And it really begins, actually, um, as an attempt on the part of, the, of uh, the uh, federal troops to arrest or return a group of Modoc who have left the Klamath Reservation uh, and bring them back onto the reserve. And uh, it begins just as, as, a, as a skirmish on a, on a riverside um, that goes wrong, and, uh, and the Modoc uh, scatter, and they end up um, killing several um, settlers who would come out to either participate in in the arrest or maybe just to witness it, and uh, and they they take up um, they take up uh, a, a hiding position within the lava bed, a space of uh, traditional uh, refuge and safety for the Modoc people. 
and uh, and then uh, the military is called out to um, to to deal with the situation, and because it's at the height of the Grant administration's so-called peace policy, uh, and a period in which the peace commissions are are supposed to uh, treat with native peoples, uh, the military doesn't uh, initially attack, and what happens instead is a long period after after a few um, early uh, efforts to to, uh, to to capture them immediately. Uh, what actually ends up uh, happening is the situation devolves into a long peace negotiation. And uh, it doesn't last a, a day or a week uh, like many of the um, so-called Indian Wars happened, um, but actually stretches out over a long period of time in, in one place. And so it's heavily covered by the newspaper and the media um, across the nation. Uh, and there's lots of chicanery, which I'm sure we'll get into uh, around the newspaper coverage at the time. Um, but it's sort of a slow boiling story that captures the nation's attention and fascination at the time. Uh, but the Monarch War becomes a national and indeed an international sensation when on April 11th, Good Friday, 1873, uh, the peace negotiations break down and uh, Edward R.S. Candy, the uh, highest ranking uh, U.S. soldier ever die in a, in, a, in a conflict with indigenous peoples in the 19th century uh, is killed by the Modoc. And what then proceeds is, uh, is a couple months of intense um, extermin- extermination level violence as the army hunts down and captures the remaining Modoc uh, and eventually puts them on trial uh, and then um, in October executes uh, the headman. And at that execution on, on October 3rd, 1873, you already start seeing the development of what you call the marketplaces of remembering. And, and very much even in the material objects and even the bodies uh, and the implements of execution immediately start begin beginning to circulate in, in this economy. What are some of the things that come out of that execution um, that begin to circulate in this landscape of memory? Sure, yeah. I mean, in many ways, um, when I was looking at this event, I, I, I was reading it alongside um, the, the, really, um, the really fascinating literature on lynching souvenirs uh, among, uh, in the South, um, predominantly, but also, you know, many of these uh, extrajudicial uh, executions that uh, happen in the West. We rarely think about these uh, military executions as, as, as lynchings, but in many ways, uh, in both form and function, they, they behave the same way. And so, yeah, uh, what happens is on October 3rd, 1873, the United States um, Army executes uh, Captain Jack and uh, several other his followers in uh, an incredibly uh, choreographed uh, execution. And uh, immediately, almost actually even before the execution, an entire commerce in um, in grotesque uh, memorabilia begins. So, um, the, a few nights beforehand, they uh, take photographs of the Modoc prisoners who are about to be executed. Um, they that, that are then uh, put into cabinet cards that are, are sold to um, attendees as souvenirs. Um, signatures. They collect uh, Captain Jackson marks on pieces of paper, which they sell and distribute. Um, and then once the execution actually begins, a whole um, just macabre um, scene uh, unfolds. Uh, the hangman takes ropes and locks of the dead men's hair and sell them for $5 a piece. Um, they, the, the, the audience um, starts dismantling the, uh, the, the, um, the, uh, the gallows. 
and collects pieces of them. You and, and today you still find these 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 uh, these pieces of of, um, of the gallows. You know, some of them were fashioned into gavels that people like uh, the the uh, Grand Army, the president of the Grand Army Republic for the state of Oregon, used this as sort of gavel for ringing in their meetings, um, and others um, collected uh, locks uh, pieces of the rope. And these end up circulating among local, uh, a local aficionados and uh, collectors of things that are of, of Indian memorabilia, that eventually get bought up by state archives and national and, uh, and university um, libraries and museums, um, and they continue to circulate even to this day mm. um, in the forms of, um, of basically lynching souvenirs. And then these images, right? We already talked about the photographs that were taken. It's not just in the, the kind of the immediacy of of a of a of a noose or a lock of hair, but the photographs also circulate nationally. Um, these little cabinet card uh, souvenirs um, are sent to uh, to New York and and, and appear in, in uh, as the illustrations for newspapers that cover the the, lyn- the uh, lynching, the execution. Mm-hmm. So Frank Leslie's Illustrated newspaper, for example, um, reproduces these um, these lynching souvenirs as their illustrations for the uh, for the for the their coverage of the of the event itself. You know, I think if we if we don't think about Indian peoples as targets of these uh, lynching mementos, mementos, we also I think make the mistake, as this book suggests, of thinking of um, this sort of grotesque lynching memorabilia as being. Um, sort of secreted away in the basements of, you know, crypto confederates or something. But you have, I mean, you have body parts that are shipped uh, to the Army Medical Museum in Washington, D.C. Some of these become the basis for some of the most respected uh, institutions of um, of science uh, and anthropology. Yeah. No, indeed. I mean, the, the long legacy of of, of Indian uh, violence and uh, removal and genocidal policies and its its interconnectedness with uh, the racial science of the day is 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 you know really an important uh, story. If we really want to understand the development of racial thought in the 19th century, uh, the uh, collecting of native bodies and the scientification of of that um, process is is really. Uh, central to the story, and I think sometimes not not mm. not told quite so openly. But yeah, the the heads, um, uh, Captain Jack's head is is removed um, and is taken to the um, taken to the museum. There's also stories that circulate later on about it being displayed in New in uh, Washington, uh, D.C. It's unclear whether or not that's actually true or not. Mm. Um, there may have just been charlatans. I mean, there's lots of charlatans were um, claimed to have body parts of the various Modoc people. Uh, that were executed that day, and they kind of circulate around for about a decade around the country. And I found lots of examples of, of people coming to see these um, ERSAT trophies, whether they were legitimate or not. Um, but basically, it's in the circulation display of these uh, of these objects that um, really a pattern of uh, commodification emerges. Right, and, and it's in this way that the supposedly invisible hand of the marketplace, I argue, uh, amplify the economic and cultural logics that were embedded within uh, the spectacle of a public execution, mm-hmm. uh, and that it basically in this process transformed uh, traces of brutal violence uh, into commodity goods, uh, which laid the foundation for future historical interpretations mm-hmm. of the Modoc War and of violence in the American West. 
I think this gets us into one of the central contentions of the book, which, I mean, it's a book about remembering and memory, but it, it is at odds to some with some of the memory scholarship uh, as it's currently conceived. Um, you want to understand not just the objects and not just the sites of memorization, but, but the lives of the people who produced it, what you call the transformative labor of historical knowledge production. Um, and I think oftentimes we use the term knowledge production or memory production. We don't actually think about the final word in that term, production, as in embedded in productive relationships, embedded in an economy. Um, and this is why you develop a framework, you say, of remembering uh, rather than memory, a verb, a process of doing, uh, not just a static noun of memory. Um, explain yeah. your framework here and what you're trying to do and what you're trying to say about memory. Sure. I, you know, this came out of my reading in the extensive field of memory um, studies. You know, and it's been a it's been a very fruitful um, arena of intellectual thought um, over the last twenty or thirty years. But uh, but it's always something that sort of struck me about it, and in some ways it's encapsulated by this mad cat rifting I I put off on Karl Marx's off-quoted statement that men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please, but under circumstances existing already. And of course, Marx is talking about class and these kinds of things. But in another way, um, I think we can think about um, the actual making of history. <laughs> that men make their own history. In other words, they write and produce their own history mm-hmm. under conditions that, that they are not necessarily in control of. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and this is what I'm thinking here is the marketplaces within which um, history itself is produced. Um, that whether it's a newspaper marketplace or it's a stage or a drama dramatic marketplace whether it's a touristic marketplace or whether it's a um novelistic or or uh, uh or even a historical marketplace a professional historiography um the demands and the structures of those marketplaces will shape the kind of narratives we can produce and the kind of narratives that will fit and conform to the demands of those marketplaces and so I think so often when we think about the literature on memory, collective memory, we, we hear things like uh, tangled memories and cords of memories and even memory boxes or sites of memory. And these are all, um, you know, these are all treating memory as a noun, that memory is an object, that, that when we think about history in the past and memory, it's, it's an object that we, should in, uh, that we should analyze and interpret as an object. But in many ways... Um, Narratives of the past are also um, active things. Remembering is a verb. It is a kind of labor in the production of a version of the past. And as a as a verb, as a as a form of labor, that we can um, we can study it as a kind of um, economic activity whose whose uh, whose material circumstances shape its its outcome. And that's something that I, I was hoping to explore in this in this book is really kind of situate the moments of remembering to make sense of the narratives that are produced in those moments, and that opens up the lives of the people who are telling those stories, be they native or non-native. Mm. So some of the the first people to begin performing this labor of remembering uh, are the journalists we alluded to earlier who swarmed into the Klamath Basin uh, as the fighting unfolded and made this story into an international story, as you say. Uh, what are some of the, the tropes um, and frameworks that these white journalists use to understand and disseminate news of the war? Uh, how did they tell the story of the Modoc War as it was happening uh, and in its aftermath? 
Right. Well, the, the important thing is to realize is that newspaper coverage, as I, as I, as I argue in the book, kind of unfolded in three um, overlapping phases, right? And it's, it's kind of important because uh, it's going to actually be the nature of the Gilded Age press that um, is going to end up um, determining the ways in which this war is coverage, covered. So, you know, to begin with, we have to think about um, the, the, the level of partisanship um, that had defined um, newspaper coverage uh, during the 19th century, in particular prior to the Civil War, when the vast majority of American newspapers were really aligned with political parties. Um, that this begins to, this is, this is the kind of classic story we understand of, of the partisan press. And it, and it remains very important um, throughout the 19th century, but um, beginning especially after the, um, the Civil War, uh, newspapers begin to become much more market-oriented, less dependent upon um, party uh, publishing contracts, and much more just sort of um, required to appeal to, to a mass public. And this ends up um, driving the, the kind of news that they cover. But initially, uh, initially when the, when the war breaks out, it's actually um, largely covered within the partisan politics of the, of the Grant administration and, and that time period. And um, so the, the initial, con- initial um, word of the conflict, um, you know, they, 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 try, they basically fight out their partisan battles um, there. And newspapers from the East Coast and throughout the West Coast um, send reporters to uh, cover this, this, this conflict, which they think is going to be um, uh, an, an exciting, sensational event. And, and they get there. And they're just talking. <laughs> the uh, the army and, and and Jack and the Modoc uh, are just meeting every every week or so to discuss um, peace terms. And so these reporters have traveled all the way out there to get to get, um, to, get a, to get a exciting news coverage of a of a of a bloody Indian conflict, and nothing is happening. <laughs> and so they they try for a while um, digging up dirt on the the local um, the local. Uh, Agent, um, and and they try to kind of see what the what the who who are the where are the skeletons in the local um, uh, among the local um, people involved, but that doesn't really get them anywhere. And so uh, what they begin to do is actually manufacture their own sensational coverage of the event. And this is really um, uh, this is really shown most clearly in in the exploits of a of a reporter named Edward Fox who is. Um, a reporter for the New York Herald. He's actually the yachting uh, reporter, I believe, for um, James Gordon Bennett's um, Herald. And and he goes and he um, he sort of models himself as a as a latter day um, Stanley who's going to go in and and you know find Doctor Livingston in the forest of, mm-hmm. of dark heart of Africa. And so he he kind of. Um, uh, goes into the Modoc. Um, Stronghold, as they call it, the 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 the, the place where the Modoc seek refuge um, is it, it's a traditional site of refuge for for Modoc mm-hmm. people uh, in the lava beds. But but the the press immediately um, dubs it the stronghold, mm-hmm. and so uh, Fox goes in there and he actually cap gets the first interview with Captain Jack, and he he makes a big deal out about this um, in in the in the press, and and he actually gets some really amazing facts out of out of 
out of Jack. You know, Jack talks about how this conflict was about the fact that um, they were the settlers were encroaching on their land, and that the Modoc had tried to incorporate themselves within the local economy. They had tried to accommodate Euro-American um, expanding economics in this region. They had tried to, um, you know, basically they tried to uh, fit within the expanding settler colonial economy in the region, and they just kept on getting um, backstabbed. Mm-hmm. And so you really get a glimpse into what are the origins and causes of this conflict uh, from the Modoc perspective. But in the news, as Fox reports it, it's all a, a spectacle of masculine journalistic prowess. You know, he, it's, it's all about how brave he was to get in there and the incredible feat of, of, of a journalistic adventure that this was. And um, the story that ends up getting circulated is really about um, how, you know, how expensive it was for them to, to transmit this story. And, and it becomes all about the, the journalists and, and their bravery and not about the natives and their perspective um, on the conflict. And so um, in many ways it was, this, it was this kind of need to sensationalize the journalists' involvement in the event that obscure any Modoc um, perspective on, on what, was it, what was this war really about. Mm-hmm. There, there's some incredible uh, images you include uh, in the book, um, engravings from uh, the press coverage that also uh, reflect some of the interesting sort of racialization and some of the genocidal rhetoric that's also existing. There's an incredible um, engraving by Frank Leslie, the head of a nation's nightmare yeah, on page yeah. 58, which is incredibly revealing. Um and and also allows you to connect, I think, this story, this coverage to other debates that are circulating in the press about Reconstruction and about the place of freedmen. Um, and just right. to describe the image, it, it is a, a, a white man asleep in his bed, and he is having this terrifying nightmare. There is a, a naked African-American man with Louisiana written behind him, sort of towering over him inside the bedroom and outside the bedroom, uh, outside the window, uh, is a Modoc man sort of snarling with a gun in his hand looking inside. What's going on in this image yeah. here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, yeah. So, uh, well, let's talk about that image. Definitely. Let me, let me kind of back up a second. So, um, so basically that, that, that earlier period of manufactured sensationalism that I was discussing, right, right. Um, that comes to an end, right, in, in, on April 11th, uh, Good Friday, when, when the Modoc uh, attack and kill uh, uh, General Canby. And immediately this conflict gets picked up by the press and gets spun into a really amazing sensational event. I mean, you know, in, in a lot of ways you have to realize, you know, Canby was a, was a declared Civil War general. Um, he was a, a major general, a very high-ranking ranking man. Um, and his death was was seen as a as really an incredible um, moment in in the nation's um, uh, relationship with indigenous peoples, and the calls are incredible. Um, Sherman and um, and Grant call for the Modocs quote utter extermination. I mean, this is written in the newspaper, mm-hmm. right? You will be fully justified in their utter extermination, um, and the. There's um, a couple famous um, engravers that, that uh, show up and start um, producing images after the fact um, that portray Native people as these savage monsters. And, and there's even another one later on that shows um, 
uh, actually depicts native uh, Modocs as as bugs, you know, to be exterminated, uh, mm-hmm. bed bugs. There's, there's one image of a of a Uncle Sam hunting the Modoc fleas in his lava bed, and it's actually in his bed, you know. And, and so this kind of discourse of extermination and of savagery becomes how the Modoc War is portrayed within the media, and uh, and and how the narratives then of, of basically to justify their violence because of this uh, savage betrayal on the part of the native peoples. But at the same time, um, there are other events unfolding within the nation as well. Um, so the, the Modoc uh, killed Canby on, on Friday, Good Friday. On, on Sunday, there, uh, the Colfax massacre in Colfax, Louisiana, um, really erupts into, um, uh, or really, uh, it happens. Uh, there's uh, up to 150 freedmen are killed. And these two things combine together in the national imagination about what this event means. And so within this image, the, the, head, the head of the nation's nightmare, that's Grant sitting in his bed. And it really shows the central tension that uh, the United States was facing during Reconstruction, which is what is going to be the, the future role of African-American freedmen in this nation and what is going to be the role of Native peoples. And this, um, this image it really evokes an evolving understanding of the Reconstructed nation's future uh, racial composition, right? Mm-hmm. It places the native threat, the indigenous threat, outside of the house of the of the nation, outside of the the, the home, and the former slave is within, right? And, and um, by you know, in the main way, by locating the Modoc um, outside of the house, it depicted indigenous peoples as an external threat to the nation, whereas um, the Colfax massacre and the Freedmen issue is portrayed as within the house, um, as in other words, the kind of former black slave is a danger that is emanating from within the house mm-hmm. of American uh, society. So in a lot of ways, this conflict gets pulled into um, evolving debates about, um, about this period of what Elliot West calls greater reconstruction, this period of, of um, incorporating the West and, and the South back into um, a reconstructed uh, union and reconstructed United States. Well, it's interesting too because and, and so the Modoc War plays a really central role. In, yeah, what I was going to say the Modoc War really plays a central role in, in setting up the nation's um, perspective on on what will be how are we going to deal with Native peoples um, as we reconstruct this nation. And prior to the Modoc War, the answer was peace. Hmm. I grant that this will be a peaceful. There will be a peace policy. There will be a peaceful incorporation of Native peoples. Uh, after the Modoc War, there will be a violent uh, incorporation of Native peoples. And that's what gives us the Indian Wars of the 1870s. You know, and it's interesting because this is a transformational moment of incorporation, as you're saying. I mean, the the Modoc figure in that image is standing outside the house. But when um, Modoc leaders like Captain Jack and others are prosecuted for murder, it's they're being in a way incorporated under the domestic sphere of U.S. litigation. I mean, this this crime is starting to get to be known as a crime, as a sort of domestic murder, as opposed to the results of a international conflict. How is that beginning to yeah. unfold here? Well, that begins to unfold because um, the question becomes if we want to try them. So they want to kill, you know, obviously after Jack is arrested and his followers are arrested, they want to, they want to execute them. Um, but the question becomes, how do we execute them? <laughs> you know, I mean, under mm-hmm. what under what jurisdiction? They want to try them, um, but if they try them by uh, for murder, murder is a civil crime. Mm. Um, and if this was um, 
uh, so so they'd have to be tried by a local grand jury, you know, Jackson County or Shasta County or some local jury. The, the, the federal government wants to keep it under their control. Um, and so they want to try them in military court. So in order to do that, they have to um, say, well, these are enemy combatants. These are, these are enemy combatants of a foreign nation. Um, and so that ca- causes all kinds of problems. If, if Native peoples are domestic dependent nations, if they're wards of the state, how can they actually declare war on, on the federal government? And so they have to create this kind of alchemy that transforms um, wards of the state into temporarily, temporarily uh, foreign combatants in order to try them in, in military, um, military, by military tribunal and then execute them. Um, and there's an incredible um, attorney's general opinion uh, uh, written in which um, um, the, attorneys, the federal attorney's general kind of lays out this tortured logic that, um, that, that, that allows them to, to ultimately try the Modoc uh, by, uh, by military tribunal. And they do. Mm. And they're found guilty. And, of course, this is, is this the legal opinion that you end up finding um, in 2008 um, coming out of the so-called uh, torture memos written in the Bush administration and, and how to justify their treatment of detention? Um, I mean, that, that's one of the most fascinating um things about this book. I mean, you know, as I was reading up until the point where you identify uh, those torture memos as being rested on this legal logic from the Modoc War, I was thinking the whole time there's an incredible resonance. I mean, especially on the question of American innocence and victimization, which we'll get into in a moment uh, with contemporary U.S. foreign policy and imperial behavior. But I was thinking the whole time, this is just sort of an ideological backdrop. It's an implicit sort of uh, understanding uh, that connects these settler wars of the late 19th century with the imperial wars of the 21st century. But then I, I get to this coda at the end of this chapter, and it's not implicit at all. It's quite explicit. Um, talk about yeah. finding that in this this legal memo from the memos from 2001. You found it in, in 2008. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when I began researching this project, I, I basically set up a Google alert for all kinds of terms, MODOK, MODOK war, a whole variety of terms. And as you do, as one does, you get a, 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 a Steady diet of pings in your uh, in your in your inbox. Um, but yes, in, 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 at some point in the spring or summer of 2008, I got a, a notice um, of the Mohawk War. It appeared somewhere in a post discussing so-called enhanced interrogation techniques uh, used on suspected Al Qaeda operatives, and I followed it, it, it through and. I discovered the um, John Woo's uh, so-called torture memos, and these are, of course, an 81. I think they're 81 pages long, and it's dense legalese, and obviously thousands of, uh, or at least hundreds, uh, statutes are cited. Um, but um, as I read through them, there's there's uh, one really crucial point in which um, the in which um, uh, in which you uh, cites uh, yeah George Williams's uh, 1873 Modoc uh, War Prisoner Opinion. Um, as justification for uh, the use of uh, enhanced interrogation techniques on on, on native um, or on um, on uh, so-called enemy combatants, uh, I'm trying to see here if I can find the um, the actual wording of of the of the use of um, of this thing. He says here, Wu says it cannot be pretended. I'm sorry, no, this is Williams. Williams says it cannot be pretended that a United States soldier is guilty of murder if he kills a public enemy in battle. Uh, which would be the case if municipal law was in force and applicable to an act committed under such um, circumstances. So the Murdoch, he was basically arguing, could be legally killed 
by the U.S. military, as long as they were first declared to be criminals or enemy, public enemies, right? Mm. Um, and that then that they could that then the the death and and, and murder of these uh, native so-called criminals was not itself actually murder. It was simply um, uh, a kind of temporary condition of of war against what would otherwise be war to the state. <laughs> mm-hmm. So who who kind of resurrected this is saying you know that the that the structures this is Wu now saying the structures that bind the executive in its role as a magistrate enforcing the civil laws have no place in restraining the president in waging war. Mm-hmm. You know you can't you can't you cannot um, you cannot uh, suggest that um, the president is is not capable of of um, pursuing criminals wherever they are, be they citizens or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's using this legal you know it's it's this way that legal theories matter, mm-hmm. right? The legal legal theories born even legal theories born to justify uh, the use of military tribunals against indigenous criminals in the 19th century can give rise to American innocence in the 21st century. And it's it's these it's these connections and the and really the the continuations of these narratives of American innocence that that this book is trying to trace. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I was in graduate school uh, in the early 2000s, I was asked by um, one of my professors, Barbara Wilkie at the University of Minnesota. She said, she, I remember at the end of, of, a, of a seminar, she said, she asked us all, well, you know, we talked about, like, how, you know, post-World War II, Cold War consensus shapes historiography or the linguistic turn or whatever. How will 9-11 shape our historiography? Mm. And I remember at the time having no idea how to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was just a few years after 9/11, and I was being asked, you know, how how will the recent events shape our our, our, our approach to history? And I feel in a lot of ways now um, that I have an answer to that. You know, and that was the book I ended up writing. Absolutely. That that understanding the ways in which um, these 19th century conflicts uh, created enduring narratives of American innocence that uh, we carried. Uh, as a nation and as a, as a culture through the 20th century and into the 21st century to understand our foreign wars uh, and our wars of empire mm-hmm. um, as fundamentally innocent. Uh, that's, a, that's a development that, um, that I see uh, happening really around the conflicts against indigenous peoples and, and their conquests in the 19th century. And the Modoc War is an important step in that development. And it's moments like this that we see um, American innocence uh, Connecting uh, these 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 dual legacies of conquest. One of the the first uh, magazine covers of, of his time, or, or Newsweek after the September 11th attacks, was uh, in giant captions: "Why do they hate us?" Um, yeah, uh, and yeah. so it's one of the one of the most actually remarkable things you demonstrate in this book is how quickly, and I mean within the course of years, within the course of months, you can go from. Um, this genocidal uh, rhetoric of extermination, active calls for extermination of Modoc people coming from politicians and the press, um, to what seems like very quickly a hegemonic understanding of American innocence, that the war is a product of inevitable, I mean, perhaps even tragic social forces. Um, that narrative of tragedy, of inevitability, of innocence doesn't just emerge, you know, decades in the future when Americans, you know, separated by generations start feeling bad about um, the legacy of conquest. It's happening quite quickly on the ground. How does that begin yeah. to emerge uh, in the Klamath Basin, um, those ideas of innocence? 
Right. Um, well, here, I, here, I think again, talking about the material circumstances within which um, historical memory is produced, we have to realize uh, the evolving economics of the Klamath Basin in the decades after uh, the Modoc War. You know, the, the Klamath Basin is an extremely um, uh, isolated region of the country um, that was basically committed mostly to local farming uh, for local consumption and. Uh, and a little bit of export in, in wool and a few other light, lightweight kind of commodities. Um, but beginning in the, um, in the 1890s, um, in the 1880s, uh, there is talk of, um, of railroads coming into the region. And this is, this is really important because the Columbus Basin, um, while remote, is also home to some of the, the great uh, stands of Ponderosa Pine. In North America, and there's and there's a, a huge um, construction boom across uh, the country in the late 19th century, and the forests of the of the old Northwest um, are being depleted, and so a lot of these lumber barons are looking to the Pacific Northwest um, for new sources of timber, and within the Klamath Basin, of course, um, all this timber is contained within the Klamath Reservation, and so uh, where before the Modoc were seen as um, a kind of uh, dark stain on the region's history, and the Modoc War was seen as this as this um, as this uh, frontier uh, Indian War. Uh, there's a concerted effort on the part of locals to transform the conflict into uh, into uh, n- not a bump on the road to modernity, but actually as the kind of uh, turning point of a of a kind of um, collective um, cooperation between Klamath natives and local whites uh, in the production of a modern Klamath basin. And at first, um, climate uh, people are, are are willing to participate in this in this um, in this re-narration. There's a there's a famous um, a reenactment of the Modoc War that takes place in in uh, 1893, in which um, they they literally bury the hatchet uh, and they smoke uh, you know they smoke the peace pipe and and uh, it's 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 trying to perform this this re-narration of the event. Um, and, and a lot is because you know the, the climate Indians are just as interested in economic development as, as their as their local white uh, counterparts. Sure. Um, but a series of events um, end up throwing into question, and then ultimately completely undermining this promise of economic um, advancement for for native peoples. And uh, they're they're quite complicated, and I, I lay them out in, in greater detail in the book. But they involve things like allotment, uh, as the reservation begins a lot becomes. Allotted. Um, there's problems that arise during that process. There's some land claim processes uh, that that end up going the wrong way for the tribes. Um, and, and so that so that by the time the, the railroad ultimately does arrive in uh, 1909, the climates uh, feel themselves um, to have been completely marginalized uh, and, and and cut out of the promise of economic um, growth and and cooperation that the climate basin is now reorienting it. South, and and this results in, in a backlash uh, by 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 Modoc and Klamath peoples against these these reconciliatory narratives. Hmm. In that process of um, re-narrating the Modoc War as a turning point in the sort of struggle between um, you know savage violence and civilization, it's not just white economic boosters who are 
participating in that rhetoric or, or monetizing that memory, you also find Native people, um, and particularly a woman named Toby Riddle, who became famous yeah. around the country as Winema, uh, who participated in that marketplace of remembering and, and, and participating even more specifically in that sort of civilization savagery dyad and was able to make a living off of it. Can you talk about her story? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the Winema uh, story uh, is, is it was a really fascinating one. Um, in many ways, she's the, um, the probably the most famous um, uh, name to come out of this um, this event, uh, and um, in in a lot of ways, she's oftentimes portrayed as a kind of Pocahontas-like figure or an indigenous Florence Nightingale. And she's and in particular, the the story that, that begins to accrue around her is that she saves. Um, uh, Alfred Meacham, who is the the, the chairman of the Peace uh, Commission, um, that she she rescues and saves his life during the attack. Um, and, she, and in some of these representations, she like literally throws her body across him, his body, in a kind of a reenactment of the Pocahontas story. Um, <clears throat> this story is is widely circulated and and well remembered to the point where today. Um, there's the Wainema National Forest and and uh, and all kinds of landscape uh, uh, markers of her of her her story. Um, but in my in in investigating this aspect of the Modoc War story more, um, you quickly realize that this is actually the product of a of an entire stage performance. <laughs> that this is actually um, her stage name, the stage name for Toby Riddle, um, and that. Uh, this whole narrative of a kind of Pocahontas-like figure is more the product of the uh, post-war lyceum and uh, lecture circuit than it actually is of historical uh, memory. And so, so basically what happens is after the war, Meacham survives and he puts together a, uh, a traveling Indian show that is going to perform the history of um, the Modoc War on the stages of, of the East Coast. And, and they're quite successful um, but they, but in many ways, Meacham at this point hasn't fully uh, embraced the sensationalist story that will that will eventually crew around Toby Riddle. She still performs under the name Toby Riddle. Um, a lot of it is more of the kind of um, friends of the Indian lecture than it is actually a sensationalized um, Wild West show. So a lot of it is about demonstrating their um, attainments of civilization and lecturing on um, the sobriety of the, of the Modoc and climate people and the, and the ills, uh, the, 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 the um, short-sightedness of American policy and, and less of sort of um, dramatic uh, rescues and, and, and uh, displays of arrow shooting. Mm-hmm. And while this is successful, it's it's not particularly um, uh, successful as a market endeavor. And so, um, by uh, by the, by uh, by June of 1875, uh, Meacham's um, uh, lecture company is is essentially on the brink of bankruptcy. And it's during this this um, financial challenge that they revamp and recreate their stage performance, uh, and they rename Toby Riddle uh, Wainema. And they turn it into this um, incredibly sensationalist performance uh, in which her rescuing of um, Meacham is the centerpiece of the story. Um, and this, this, uh, they produce a, a pamphlet um, called uh, Wainema, the Woman Chief and Her People, that is basically just a dime novel <laughs> version of the, of, the, of the conflict. And, uh, and, and their, their stage performance becomes successful enough that they're able to uh, recoup some profits and, and head home. 
but the interesting and amazing thing about the story is that once it's been created, once the, the story of Wainema becomes created, it, it engulfs and um, consumes the real-life story underneath it. Uh, to the point where in many professional histories of the, of the event produced after the fact, um, has no mention of Toby Riddle. Uh, they, they, they refer to her simply as Wainema by her stage name. Um, and uh, many versions of the, many histories of the, uh, of, of the Modoc War that are trying to draw on the backstory of this character actually use scenes from this fanciful dime novel as historical mm. fact and evidence for um, her early life. And of course, you know, almost all of it is the product of, of Meachin's uh, imagination. But it gets written into the, um, into the historical uh, narrative of the conflict. And, and in many ways, this is because uh, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative that, um, that, that redeems the Modoc War in a lot of ways. You know, in this conflict where uh, two people were diametrically opposed, right? Uh, the Modoc people and the federal government, uh, one woman tried to, to stand in the breach. Right? Mm-hmm. And this is the classic Pocahontas story. Um, but it, but it's, it, it, she becomes this um, embodiment of American innocence, and her actions become uh, a kind of redemptive narrative. Uh, if only people could have been, if only both sides could have been more like Wainema, this conflict could have been avoided, right? And that's a kind of way of romanticization of this conflict uh, that casts it, that, that avoids the kind of settler colonial underpinnings of the Modoc War and casts it instead within the culture of conflict paradigm. Um, and, and it's and it's that reason I argue that that uh, that the myth of Wainema has has always stood in for the actual story of Toby Riddle. Mm. Um, and and this legacy we can see is still written today on the very landscape of the Klamath Basin. In 1926. Um the Lava Beds National Monument, or memorialization therein to the Modoc War, uh, is unveiled. Um, how did that m- memorial come about, and, and how, did, how did that public memorialization remember the Modoc War? Right, yeah. Um, so this, this monument is a, is a pretty um, interesting monument. It's, it, it's, called, it's, it's called the Lava Beds Monument, um, and, but more commonly known as the Golden Bear Monument. And uh, basically, what it is is just a, a, a lava bed, a current of lava beds, a, a pillar of lava bed uh, stitched together with some cement, and then it has a large um, golden bear, the, the 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 you know the the symbol of California uh, on it. And according to to newspaper accounts, I, I can't actually make it out in any of the photographs, but according to newspaper accounts, there is supposedly an arrow embedded within the golden bear. Uh, you know, and, and what it comes to symbolize is that the is that the Modoc War was a significant event in California's history. Um, that the Golden Bear, wounded by the Modoc, continues to roar on in its sort of uh, majesty, and and it, it really solidifies that the Modoc War was California's uh, last Indian War. Uh, but it also, in, in many interesting ways, also um, expands the category of who were the victims of the Modoc War. So we think about the the early coverage of of the conflict in newspaper coverage. Um, the uh, the Modoc uh, the Camby right General Camby is largely seen as the as the as the sole victim uh, of of the Modoc War. 
But in this moment, um, it expands it out to all the, the soldiers and pioneer settlers who also sacrificed their lives. And it kind of becomes a, a sort of much more expansive interpretation of who are the victims of this conflict. Well, all soldiers and settlers who were involved were, um, were the survivors of the Modoc War. It has no mentions of, of, of the native peoples who were victimized by, by this event. In a lot of ways, this is part of a continuation of the memorial landscape of the lava beds. Um, the first memorial in this region is Camby's Cross, uh, a large um, human-sized cross that is dedicated to Camby. It's, it's a first set up in, um, in, in the 1880s um, by a, a soldier um, uh, whose name is uh, John S. Park, um, and he writes uh, in this you know, human-sized white cross, supposedly held in place by um, a pile of rocks that were bathed in the blood of Camby. That's what the uh, one person, one local um, recalls. He'd written the cross on the cross beam of the, of, the, um, of the cross. General Camby, USA, was murdered here by the Modoc, April 11, 1873. Mm-hmm. So you see already this kind of uh, narrative of, of victimhood and, 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 and perpetrator um, being inscribed onto the very landscape. And Camby's cross becomes a very famous um, a tourist um, site. Many many people go there. Um, it's it's a kind of a, a landmark in the region for anyone visiting. Uh, well, the in order to to um, promote this tourism for places like um, Camby's Cross and other um, sites of the of the Modoc War, local boosters in in the region in Southern Oregon, Northern California, uh, devise a plan to to preserve the battlegrounds as a national park. As a result of uh, becoming a national uh, park or, an, or a national monument, uh, the Lava Beds uh, National Monument ended up solidifying a redemptive uh, narrative of American innocence onto the very landscape uh, and memorializing uh, the soldiers and settlers as the victims of the Modoc War uh, and, and the indigenous uh, people as the criminals responsible for this uh, national crime. Mm-hmm. So in the epilogue of remembering the Modoc War, you take us um, about 60 years ahead of this national monument of, of redemptive violence to a new updated version of the Lava Beds National Monument, the consecration of the Modoc War. And, and what's attempted here is to include all of the so-called victims of the conflict. So a local historian declared everyone is treated the same, civilians, soldiers, Indians, uh, in this new 1988 memorial. What's wrong with including everybody on the same plane? Right, right, yeah. Um, well, so to, to kind of back to back up one second, the, the kind of the backdrop for this whole moment is is a kind of multicultural moment in sure. American history, right? Um, so you have the kind of uh, you have the you know the climate uh, for most people who who study um, indigenous history in the United States will know the climate are perhaps most famous is all for their termination battles. Uh, in the 50s and 60s, the climates um, are terminated, um, and this is a this is absolutely dire moment um, that has huge consequences for the climate people, um, and they only are actually recognized after decades of of cultural loss and community, um, uh, uh, you know, loss as a result of of, of um, termination. They're recognized in in 1986, and it's this moment of 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 um, trying to re-knit together the communities within the Klamath Basin after uh, these long times of discrimination, but also of a kind of national mood of, of multicultural inclusion. 
Um, and so, yeah, so, so in this monument, it's the first monument that, is, that purports to list all, all of the victims of the Modoc War. So no longer is the lava beds going to be a, a, a redemptive landscape of white victimhood, but now it's going to include everyone, civilians, soldiers, and Indians. And everyone is going to be treated the same, as, um, as uh, Francis Landrum um, puts uh, in it. Of course, the, the, the actual... Um, uh, motivations behind this monument are disclosed in a, in a speech at the same time by the superintendent, Doris um, Olmanson, who, who notes that, you know, the soldiers were, quote, just doing their jobs, which is an ominous um, way of thinking about the Modoc War. But one of the things that I uh, bring to bear on this is that in this multicultural moment, uh, in which everyone is, is supposedly treated the same, uh, we actually have embedded within that uh, a historical revisionism that is rooted in the notions of American innocence. Because by saying that civilian soldiers and Indians were all the same, uh, earlier in the book, in the prologue, I, I note that there's a, uh, also a, a sign in the National Park that says there were no winners and there were no losers in this war, right? Well, there clearly were winners, <laughs> and there were clearly losers. And the civilian soldiers and Indians are not all the same. Right, that, that it's within this, this uh, monument of cultural inclusion that we have what I call the violence of um, of equality. Right, it's just ways in which by by ignoring the inequality of the past in the name of contemporary reconciliation, that uh, that, that we actually promulgate narratives of American innocence. Multiculturalism's desire to locate inequality within a distant past is actually part of. Um, of, 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 of American innocence, right? Mm -hmm. And so by, by presenting themselves, by presenting this, this memorial as one that, that, um, that treats everyone the same, um, I argue that this is a kind of exchanging gift to the dead. And here I'm, I'm picking up off the old uh, anthropological concept of the gift in which a reciprocal exchange um, is, 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 is made. And so here the, the memorialists who, who built this monument said, here, we're, we're going to give you the gift of, of inclusion onto this, onto this memorial landscape. We're going to recognize that there were Modoc victims. And in exchange for that, um, you are obligated to forgive all the history of, of violence and of discrimination and of, and of memorial violence, right, of, of innocence. You, you are to forgive this history of innocence. Um, and that, that has that has shaped um, memory within this within this area, um, and uh, you know it's it's just, it's in these ways that uh, a multicultural marketplace of remembering sets up a, a really unfair exchange that that we're asked to do. We ask the living to make a gift in the present to the dead in the past. You know, justice, reparation, reconciliation. Um, these are the currencies with which we make deals with the dead and seek to trade their death for our forgiveness. And at the end of the day, um, I'm, I'm actually quite, you know, I'm quite dubious uh, power of, of equality as a, as a, as a solution to, to the violence of the past. Hmm. Um, and there are many ways in which to continue, but, but, uh, but I'll, I'll try to kind of deconstruct how, even in this moment of, of multicultural inclusion, we actually have, at its heart, a narrative of American innocence. Mm. I want to take a step back for a moment and um, 
ask you how you came to, to write this book. I mean, how you came to think about the Modoc War, not just in telling a story of the war, but telling a history of the history. Was there something, um, was there a moment for you uh, or a series of moments, either in dealing with the landscape there or with the historiography that you read that made you want to make this particular kind of in- intervention? Yeah. You know, I thought about that a lot because I can't really point to a single moment about how this book came about. Um, I guess one of the things is that uh, as a child, as a kid, um, and as a young adult, I was, I was, I was, I, I admit it, you know, I, <laughs> not necessarily positive, but I was, I admit that I was a kind of military history buff, <laughs> uh, Civil War history, um, uh, the, the Indian Wars of the 19th century. Um, but in a lot of ways, the, the part of the book that always excited me the most was that last chapter. <laughs> there's always seems that mm-hmm. in the genre of these books, there's always that last chapter where they talk about all the kind of memories and, and kind of, you know, novels that were written about it and, and, and landmarks that were written. And I was always really engaged by the aftermath of these conflicts uh, and, and the kind of cultural impact they've had. And in some ways, I, I always wanted to that sort of spun out that last chapter of the of of any military history that kind of deals with um, you know its contemporary impact on popular culture and these kind of things. Um, so I, I was always interested in, or that's one of the things that made me interested in in exploring the memorial legacy of a conflict like the Modoc War. Um, but the, the the more I think um, the more important contribution that this book makes is is this argument about American innocence, right? And and how we how um, how uh, how in the 19th century Americans um, became committed to the script of understanding their conflicts as fundamentally innocent, uh, particularly the conflicts of empire and conquest. And in that way, I think it really was my engagement with with just the Modoc War because it's such an incredible conflict that is bathed in these notions of of innocence. Um, Canby's death on Good Friday. Uh, really just captured the imagination of a lot of people to make references to Christian martyrdom and sacrifice. Um, and uh, the, the, the subsequent trial of the Modoc um, on criminal charges, and you know, they're, they're, they're convicted on, for murder and violation of the law of war. It's just heavily inflicted with these, it, it, with these um, narratives about criminality and innocence in a way that, that other conflicts um, because of their innate injustice, um, are harder to maintain in American society. So very few people will kind of make the argument that um, uh, you know that the Camp Grant um, uh, victims or the Sand Creek um, victims deserved it because they were criminals. I mean, of course that that's out there, but but very but you know that's hard to be maintained in a legitimate way. Whereas you still hear people to this day say, well, you know, the Modoc. Uh, you know, they, they, certainly they were, it was an injustice, but but they, at the end of the day, they they were murderers. You know, that's that's that is still a kind of um, narrative that can be logically maintained, and that that really is an interesting. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to me, um, and so I wanted to kind of explore that uh, to some extent, and 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 the product of this book. Mm-hmm. And and not even, I imagine, even even more so, or, or alongside people who will say, yeah, but they were murderers. I think you trace this as well. People will say, well, you know, their their time had come, and, uh, you know, it was an inevitable process. Um, you know, I think that for, for many Americans now, the idea that 
settler colonial violence, so they wouldn't use that term necessarily, right. um, uh, was tragic. Or what, let me put it, you know, in the way that I imagine it comes up most is, you know, what happened, past tense, to Indians was tragic, yes. Yeah. Um, but encoded in that tragedy is is inevitability. And if something is inevitable, um, nobody is culpable. Um, and yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that kind of, the retreat of the tragical um, and the inevitable uh, is ultimately, I think, um, the product of American innocence, right? It's the way that we think about these events. Because if it, if it was ultimately a tragedy uh, or if it was ultimately uh, inevitable, then uh, responsibility is, is dispersed, if not completely displaced. Um, and so it is in that way that we think about... Um, and here we're stepping beyond the Modoc War, but U.S. Indian violence and, and the conquest of indigenous peoples in the 19th century more generally as inevitable, that we, that we reaffirm and naturalize uh, narratives about American innocence. Um, and that then gets kind of... Uh, it, 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 it's really interesting that the entire 19th century uh, expansion, uh, U.S. expansion, is, is based in, in narratives of American innocence. I mean, what is manifest destiny... Uh, other than a narrative of American innocence. Um, the very fact that we don't think about the U.S.-Mexico war within the realm of, of, uh, of American foreign policy, but as, as a kind of domestic conflict and a, and a sort of completion of a process that was preordained, this is, these are stories that we still tell to this, to this day. Uh, when people say, you know, the United States has never conquered another people, uh, which I've heard people say, you know, in my classroom, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, these are the legacies, I think, of a kind of way of viewing American history through the lens of, of innocence that, that we need to reckon with still. And I think we still need to write more histories that um, seek to understand and explain this enduring American cultural and historical uh, lens. Um, and I think that this is where indigenous history um, can be a really powerful way of exploring the the role of innocence in American history more generally, because I think it is in the conflict with indigenous people. It is in 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 making sense of our settler colonial heritage uh, that Americans have most deeply wedded themselves to the narrative of, of innocence. I've been speaking with Boyd Cuthren. He's the author of Remembering the Modoc War: Redemptive Violence and the Making of American Innocence. It's just out from the University of North Carolina Press. Um, before I let you go today, Boyd, I, I want to ask, uh, and congratulations, of course, on this achievement, but I know you're probably thinking about the next project. Can you tell us anything about uh, what you're working on next? Sure. Yeah, well, I, you know, I'm still, it's still in the kind of development process, um, and, so I, and I'm, so I don't want to kind of get too far ahead of myself here, but, uh, mm-hmm. but basically I'm interested in, um, I'm interested in, in looking at turning my hand a little bit more towards uh, towards some popular history, uh, and thinking about ways of of of, of expanding um, a critical historical narrative to a broader American audience, um, and in particular, I'm I'm interested in in this period. What, what I'm working on now is going to be an outgrowth of this book, um, and thinking about um, 
Reconstruction, you know, so we talked about, we talked a little bit about how this conflict fits within Reconstruction. Uh, I'm currently working on an idea about how to tell stories about um, the making and the unmaking of Reconstruction that, that really centers U.S. Indian violence within, within, uh, in the American West, within the larger issues around um, Reconstruction that have been more traditionally told. Uh, and so I'm hoping to have something a little more um, solid in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it's definitely going to be an outgrowth of this, and I'm definitely hoping it will be uh, something that will have a uh, that will have a enjoy a wide uh, wider wide audience uh, um, of readers inside and outside the academy. Well, you know, as I as as I mentioned to you before we started our our interview, uh, you now have an entire roadmap for what not to do in talking about at least the Modoc War. Um, so. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, You're well-primed yeah, so, not to fall into the traps that historians have been falling into for a good deal of time now. Well, yeah, well, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll see, right? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's see what happens in a few, <laughs> a few years. We could, we either, I'll, either I'll have to write a South essay in which I criticize my own mm-hmm. <laughs> narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure that uh, – but, but, yeah, hopefully, hopefully this book will be, will be a, a good primer for how to write uh, histories of violence in a way that isn't uh, reproducing a narrative of American innocence. Boyd Cutson, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Andrew. You've been listening to a discussion with Boyd Cuthren, assistant professor at York University and author of Remembering the Modoc War, Redemptive Violence and the Making of American Innocence from the University of North Carolina Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksatnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all of the past podcasts. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.